this morning we'll uh, read from and comment on a book called The Practice of Zen. Now, uh, a couple of days ago, my first Taisho of the Sashin, uh, I read the biography of uh, the Chinese, the uh, 11th, 12th century Chinese uh, Zen master Da Wei, intending at that time uh, to continue with his teachings for, for, for my second Taisho. Uh, but then I looked more closely at those at those at that text, uh, Swampland Flowers, and saw that it was uh, relatively recently that I last uh, did them. Uh, I try not to uh, go back to the same text more than every oh three years or so. So now I'm going to switch horses and. Uh, Go to this collection. It's an anthology. It's one of the very first uh, Zen uh, books in English. It's one of, one of the very few that were available to Roshi Kaplow uh, to use in Taisho and when I came to the center. And again, it's called The Practice of Zen. And it's uh, edited by and, and translated by C. C. Chang, so apparently Chinese American or Chinese, and it was uh, published in 1959. So that's that's one of the first. And I'm going back to uh, an account, an autobiography of a master Han Shan. Now this is a a, a very distinctive autobiography uh, among the the masters we've often read from the Zen masters autobiographies or biographies more commonly and um, they don't have as much in them uh, about other sects of Buddhism um, it, it uh, I'll just start in I'll get say more as we go on so his dates, Han Shan was uh, born in 1545. I, I think that, no, it's probably even after the Sung Dynasty, but it's all right, doesn't matter. Uh, just for a little comparative timeline, uh, in 1545, work began on the Mexico City Cathedral. It's a very, very famous cathedral, sort of the center when they have political protests. Uh, that's where they have them at the cathedral. That cathedral, they took 270 years to build. Uh, this was uh, 1545, was when Michelangelo did his greatest works around that time. Uh, the, and is the time of Shakespeare. All right, he, he begins. I was born at Chuan Chao in the county of Nanking. My mother was a pious Buddhist and had been a worshiper of Guan Yin. Of course, that's the Bodhisattva of Compassion, known in Japan as Kanon. Uh, a worshiper of Guan Yin all her life. One day she dreamed that the all-merciful mother brought into the house 
a child which she received with warm embraces. As a result, she became pregnant. And on the 12th of October, I was born, 1545. I'm going to, uh, what I've done in the past is read this word for word, but uh, I think it takes too long to go through everything. So um, in many cases, I'm just going to uh, uh, paraphrase and uh, use the third person. So the next year, when he was 12 months years, twelve months old, uh, a serious illness carried him to the point of death. His mother prayed to Guan Yin and vowed that if she recovered, she would offer her offer Hanshan uh, to the monastery to become a monk. And when he did recover, she duly enlisted his name in the local monastery. The Monastery of Longevity was called. So right off, he's got a head start on a career as a Buddhist monk. He says, when I was three years old, I preferred to sit alone and did not care to play with the other children. My grandfather would always exclaim, this child is like a wooden pole. When I was seven years old, my mother sent me to school. Uh, at that time, he had an uncle who, with whom he, who, who fell very close to him one day, just before uh, Hanshan returned, uh, arrived home from school, the uncle died. And then Hanshan said, when I saw him lying so still on the bed, my mother tried to deceive me about his death, saying, your uncle is asleep. You might wake him up. In other words, be quiet. You might wake him up. Then he says, whereupon I called to my uncle a few times, but he did not answer me. At this, my aunt, greatly grief-stricken, cried out to him, Oh, my heaven, where have you gone? Where have you gone? Who has not wondered that when at the death of someone close to you Have you gone? Then he, this young Hanshan, uh, Han seven years old, said to his mother, well, my my uncle's body lies right here. Why does my aunt say he has gone away? Then my mother said, Your uncle is dead. To which Hanshan said, If one dies, where does one then go? And uh, from that moment, he said, This question was deeply impressed on his mind. Here's a little a little charming incident where uh, his aunt, Hanshan's aunt, 
uh, had a uh, gave birth gave birth to a child. Uh, when my mother took me to see the newborn baby for the first time, I asked, how did this baby get into the belly of my aunt? My mother patted me and said, foolish child, how did you get into my belly? Pretty good answer. Rather than getting into explanations that he wasn't ready for. Then he says, from that day on, I was obsessed with the question of life and death. It stuck in my mind and weighed like lead on my heart. Here's a long paragraph I'm just going to paraphrase. Uh, When he was eight years old, he was boarded in the home of some relatives across the river so that he could be nearer his school. His mother forbade him to come home more often than once a month. One day, though, he refused to return to school after his monthly visit. When he told his mother that he couldn't bear to leave her, she became furious. She slapped me and chased me to the riverbank. Then, even then, he wouldn't leave her to board the ferry boat in a rage his mother grabbed him by the hair, threw him into the river, and then turned homeward without once looking back. Now, suspend judgment of this mother. My grandmother, who was nearby, called for help, and I was saved. Finally, when I reached home, my mother exclaimed, What is the use of keeping this trash alive? It would be better if he had drowned. After this, she beat me and tried to chase me away. Then I decided that my mother was too stern and cruel and that henceforth I would not go home anymore. And then he says, I later learned that my mother many times stood alone on the riverbank weeping. When my grandmother heard of this, she scolded her. With tears flowing down her cheeks, my mother answered, I must make him overcome his too affectionate nature so that he can study seriously. I don't know, she sounds like she may have been a little bit emotionally unbalanced, uh, but boy, she was determined that her son would make something of himself. Not the last mother who had that intention for their son or daughter. Uh, When he was 10 years old, he said, my mother was pressing me so hard to study that I was unhappy about it. Why should I study? I asked her. To get a position in the government, she replied. This, uh, just as a, As an aside, this was the highest aspiration anyone could have uh, in worldly occupations is to uh, get a government post, become a government official. This was everything. It's not being a doctor or a lawyer or a systems analyst or a financial analyst, but becoming a government official. And what kind of position can I have later in the government, I asked. 
mother said. You can start in a low position, and it's possible to rise to become prime minister. Even if I become prime minister, I said, what then? Well, that's as far as one can go. Well, what is the use of becoming a high government official? To toil all one's life and get nothing is futile. I wanted to attain something of eternal value. To which his mother exclaimed, Oh, a useless son like you can be nothing but a wandering monk. So then he pressed on. I asked, What good is it to become a monk? A monk, she said, is a disciple of the Buddha and can go anywhere in the world. He is a man of true freedom. Everywhere people will give him offerings and serve him. And Hanshan said, This seems very good to me. I should like to be a monk. (laughs) And then his mother said, I'm afraid that you have no such merits. When I appeared surprised at this, you have no such merits, my mother continued, there have been many champion scholars in this world, but Buddhas and patriarchs do not often appear. Uh, Most of you know, you've heard, read, that uh, in China it was all about merit, uh, acquiring merit, acquiring merit primarily by, by, uh, through charity, by being generous, especially to the Sangha, the the monastic Sangha, uh, making donations, uh, most commonly, of course, with just food, just um, giving food to wandering monks. And uh, the highest they could hope to reach was uh, to get enough merit, pile up enough merit, that in their next life they could become monks or nuns. So here she is. Boy, she's hard. I I don't think you have any such merits. I have such merits, I insisted, but I was afraid you would not let me go ahead. If you have such merit, my mother replied, I will let you go your way. And he said, this promise of hers I cherished in my heart. How many ten-year-olds cherish the possibility of becoming monks or nuns. Probably there's some, probably in a strong, I say strong Catholic upbringing. There's a period they go through where this is uh, very much uh, appealing to them. When he was 11 years old, several, I'll, I'll read it in his words, several people came wearing bamboo rain hats, you know, these are these conical straw hats. Uh, People came wearing bamboo rain hats with carrying poles upon their shoulders, approaching our house. At once, I asked my mother, who are these strangers? They're traveling monks, she replied. I was delighted and observed them most carefully. 
When they had nearly reached our house, they put down their carrying poles and rested under a tree nearby. They asked us where they could find some food. There again, the Chinese delicacy of indirectness. Not, could I have some food, but where could I find some food? My mother had them wait and immediately began preparing food for them, attending and serving them with great respect and veneration. And the monks ate, and they stood up and shouldered their poles again, but raised only one hand to express their thanks. In other words, no, no bow, I guess. But his mother waved them off, saying, Please, don't thank me. The monks left without uttering a word, to which Hanshan said, These monks seem impolite. They didn't even say thank you, but just left. And then his mother explained, If they had thanked me, I would have obtained less merit from this good deed. And then said to myself privately that their actions showed the supremacy of the monkhood. This encounter encouraged me more strongly than ever in my decision to become a monk. When he was 12, uh, he didn't like to mingle with worldly people, as he puts it, or take part in their affairs. He says, whenever my father tried to arrange a marriage for me, that, of course, was the custom in uh, olden times, in China, as in Japan, and Korea, I guess. Uh, whenever he tried, I stopped him at once. One day I heard a monk from the capital say that in the monastery of Pao En lived a great master named Shi Lin. Immediately I wanted to go to see him. I asked my father's permission to go, but he refused. So then he asked his mother to intercede for him. And she reasoned, it's better to let our son follow his own wish and to help him in help him to accomplish it. So here you see again another side of this mother where she was bound and determined to have him become a government official, uh, even to the point of driving him away. But now she, she sees that that's not his path, uh, that uh, he, was, he had convinced her over time that he was really... His strongest aspiration was to become a monk. So many parents just, they cannot yield their own, their own hopes or aspirations for their children. Maybe well-intentioned, but they, they don't have the wisdom of this, this mother to see the handwriting on the wall and to, to, um, know when, when to fold, when to allow what was clearly something that uh, he was destined to be. So that October he was sent to the monastery. And now I'll revert to his own words. As soon as the Grand Master saw me, he was pleased, remarking, this boy is an unusual person. It would be pitiable if he became just an ordinary monk.
there was this other master there who, when he saw Hanshan, he was delighted and exclaimed, this child will become the master of men in heaven. He then patted me and asked, would you rather be a high officer in the government or a Buddha? And I answered, a Buddha, of course. Then he turned to the others and said, we must not underrate this child. He should be well educated. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, he didn't say we must not underrate this child, put him in the zendo, put him, get him going. He said he should be well educated. Again, the strong, strong emphasis in, in ancient China and no, no doubt today also on education, it's getting educated as far as one can, even, even in preparation for becoming uh, ordained. says, uh, in 1564, when I was 19, many of my friends gained honor by passing the official examination. Um, when I was at Bukokuji, there was a young resident there uh, who, uh, when he got there, a Japanese resident, uh, young man, when he got there, he had just uh, passed his... Uh, his exams, these all-important exams to get into Tokyo University, the most prestigious university in Japan. And uh, Tangen Roshi was, this is one of many examples I could relate of his uh, adapting his, his teaching to the circumstances. He had stopped us all at tea break and he said, this is so-and-so, um, he just passed his, his, you know, he was just accepted into Tokyo University. And he was very, um, very laudatory. He's very, very, very much honored him. The boy was, was, was blushing, and, um, but it was a little nice insight into, uh, he didn't say, well, he's going to Tokyo University, too bad he's not being a monk. He really honored is uh, is reaching that that level. So uh, Hanshan says, "Is my my friends urged me to take the examination also? When Master Yun Ku heard of this, he became worried. Don't worry about the names of these masters. He's throwing a lot of them at us. There must have been thick as flies at, at this at this monastery." When Master Yunku heard of this, he became worried that I might be persuaded to engage in worldly affairs. Therefore, he encouraged me to practice religion and to strive for Zen. And this master related to him these many stories of these masters, various masters, the biographies of the great monks. I was so moved and exalted that I sighed to myself, saying, Oh, this is what I would like to do. And at that, he he uh, pleaded with the Grand Master to ordain him. And now we get down to business. Discarding all worldly affairs and learning, I devoted myself to the practice of Zen, but could not get anywhere. Could not get anywhere. 
Yeah. So even for someone like this who went on to become a famous master, it's hard at first. The problem, problem would, would have been that he was still trying to get somewhere. If you have a, a thought like that in mind of progressing or not progressing, then it becomes an impediment. I could not get anywhere. There's probably some impatience there as well. That's another big impediment early in practice, especially. So they hopped over to another practice, a not Zen practice, but uh, the practice of reciting the name of Buddha Amida. Now, this is just another another sect of Buddhism, other than other than Chan, other than Zen, uh, where the the idea is that if you can recite this name of Buddha Amida. Uh, in Japanese, it's Namu Amida Butsu, Namu Amida Butsu, Namu Amida Butsu. I place my faith in the in the Buddha Amida. It's a it's a non-historical Buddha. There are lots of Buddhas in Buddhism, uh, but here, if you could do this uh, as he did, reciting the name day and night without interruption. Um, you can, the idea, well, I believe this, you can get into a kind of samadhi, a chanting samadhi, a recitation samadhi. It's not Zen, but it's not so entirely different from Zen either. And here, what I started to say at the beginning of this this uh, chapter, here's where we see in uh, stark relief uh, the, the difference between as a generalization, the difference between Chinese Chan and Japanese Zen. In, uh, in, in Japan, I heard many times from Roshi Kaplo, who lived there for 13 years, in Japan, they hate mixtures. You don't mix this with that. Uh, each thing you want to make pure and complete in itself. If you're practicing Zen, practice Zen. If you're practicing the Pure Land School, do just that. And in so many things, foods and and uh, any kinds of uh, disciplines, uh, you don't mix two things. Then you don't get the full uh, rewards of either one, the full benefits. Whereas in China, apparently, uh, it was much more common uh, to do, even in one monastery, to have uh, Zen practitioners and Pure Land practitioners and, and other practitioners. We don't need to go any further and say there's a better or worse way to it. I always suspected that China being such a huge country, so much bigger than Japan, they naturally found themselves... Uh, more broad-minded and more inclined toward inclusivity than than the Japanese. It doesn't matter. This is the way it was, and still is, I think. Hakuin, the great Japanese Zen master Hakuin, used to rage about mixing uh, Zen and pure land. But here, Anshan found 
Zen a little too steep at first, so he began reciting the name of Buddha Amida, and he did it 24-7. He said, Before long, Buddha Amida appeared before me in a dream, sitting high in the sky in the direction of the setting sun. Seeing his kind face and eyes radiant with compassion, clear and vivid, I prostrated myself at his feet with mixed feelings of love, sorrow, and happiness. So he got quite a lift out of this. But then he switches again and he said, That winter our monastery invited the Master Wu Qi to teach the philosophy of Hua Yen. There's yet another giant uh, sect of Buddhism, the Yan school, or the Avatamska school, based on uh, a great sutra by that name, the Yan sutra, the Avatamska sutra. He says that uh, when the lecture came to the point of the ten mysterious gates, the eternal realm of the ocean seal, I suddenly realized the infinite and all-inclusive totality of the universe. So deeply impressed was I with a profound admiration for Ching Liang, that's the founder of the Yan school, that I adopted one of his names and called myself Ching Yin. I then put myself under the... Uh, I, I put my understanding before the Master Wu Qi, he said to me, Oh, so you wish to follow the path of Yan? Good. But do you know why he called himself Ching Liang, which means pure and cool? It, because he, it was because he used to dwell on the Ching Liang mountain, cool in summer and icy and frozen in winter. And then Han Shan says, From that moment, whether walking or standing still, I always saw before me a fantasy world of ice and snow. I then made up my mind to go and dwell on that mountain. Nothing in the world could attract me any more. The yearning to renounce this world arose continuously within me. Now we'll return to this Ching Liang mountain a little bit later. In, uh, when he was 20, his master died, and a few days before his death, he summoned all the monks in the monastery and said, I am now 83 years old. Very soon I will be leaving this world. I have some 80 disciples, but the one who will carry on my work is Hanshan. After my death, you should all obey his orders and not neglect his injunctions just because of his age. It's hard to believe that he would single out this 20-year-old. He must have seen the extraordinary uh, qualities, potential in Hanshan. Um, and then his his, uh, his master um, called each monk into his room to say goodbye. 
Uh, we were all very much surprised by this. Three days later, he settled his affairs and made his will. And uh, at the time, he appeared to have only a slight illness. We took him some medicine, but he refused it, saying, I am going away. What is the use of taking drugs? So with his rosary in hand, he died in the sitting posture. And then uh, in October of the same year, this uh, another master opened up a meditation assembly. We could say it's a uh, kind of a session. He called together 53 nationally known elders in order to reveal and propagate the teaching of meditation through its actual practice. Because of the recommendation of Master Yun Ku, I was able to join the assembly. At first, I did not know how to work, how to do the meditation, and was greatly disturbed by my ignorance. So here again, second barrier he reaches with, with respect to uh, Chan meditation. He burned some incense and offered it to the master and then asked him for instruction. He first taught me how to work on the koan, who is the one who recites the name of Buddha Amida. See, in this koan, you see the fusion of Zen, Chan, and Pure Land. Instead of just asking, just reciting the name of the Buddha Amida, who is it, the, who, is it who recites that name? It's very much in line with what someone working on who am I or who is this would, would do, is always have the presence of mind to not get caught in the content, but then ask who is doing this. Hanshan says, I concentrated for the next three months on working on this koan without a single distracting thought. Now this is where he loses me. It's a little hard, stretches credibility that he would go for three months without a single distracting thought. So he, he places he seems uh, inclined toward uh, some exaggeration, but that aside, he goes on, it was as if I were absorbed in a dream. During this whole period, I was not aware of anyone in the assembly or of anything happening around me. Now, here, I want to pause and make the point that um, what he is describing is a state of no-mindedness and not mindfulness. We've uh, reached a, a point in our uh, culture where mindfulness is held up as sort of the highest ideal and uh, it is indeed wonderful beyond words at how much people now are looking to mindfulness as a practice but it's not the same as no-mindedness. Again, uh, 
I was not aware of anyone in the assembly or of anything happening around me. Many people who were not uh, familiar with Zen would, would, would say, well, this, what kind of meditation is that? You're not aware of other people around you, things happening? But this is a kind of samadhi that one can reach where we lose such awareness. Before getting to that point, mindfulness is, is an important component of Zen practice. We have to be mindful to notice when our mind has wandered. It seems that here, Anshan was beyond that point. But for everyone else, we have to be alert. We have to notice where our attention is and bring it back to our practice when we notice that it, it has strayed. But, he says, in the first few days of my earnest striving, I was much too anxious and impatient my impatience caused the rapid growth of a carbuncle on my back, which swelled to a large size and was acutely inflamed. Notice how he just reports, as a matter of fact, that that was the cause of the carbuncle. It was his impatience. And I don't find that hard to believe that, you know, that uh, there was a, that was the somatic effect of his impatience. His, uh, he said his master was moved with great pity for him. He uh, wrapped a, a shawl. Uh, the master wrapped a shawl around Hanshan's shoulder and prayed mournfully and with great sincerity uh, before a certain bodhisattva. No, he, excuse me. He, Hanshan, wrapped the the uh, shawl around his shoulder and prayed and uh, made this vow. This affliction must be a karmic debt which I owe from a previous incarnation and which I must pay back in this life. But in order that I may complete this meditation period, so he was determined to see, see it out, go to the end, complete it, I beg you to postpone it to a later date. Before you as a witness, I promise to pay this debt after the meditation practice, and I also promise to recite the Hua Yen Sutra ten times to show my gratitude to you. Thus I made my vow. And feeling very tired, he went to bed that evening, <clears throat> not even waking when the time for meditation was over. The next day, the master asked, How is your sickness? I answered, I don't feel anything wrong now. He then looked at my back and found that the carbuncle had healed. All the monks were moved with admiration and astonishment. And so I was able to complete the meditation practice period, the Sashin. This, this I don't find far-fetched at all, that the power of the mind, the power of concentration, the power of 
devoted concentration would have even this quite sudden healing effect on the body. I'm waiting for when such a thing might happen to me and I will be all in with what he was doing. And he says that when that assembly was over, I still felt as if I were in meditation all the time, even while walking through the bazaar or on a busy street. This would be the most wonderful thing if one could, after Sashin, uh, maintain uh, that what we this kind of state that we can reach in Sashin. But it's almost impossible without sitting as much as we are. If you go from sitting 12 or 15 hours a day, as as many people do in Sashin, to sitting an hour a day, how can you sustain it? Here he had the added, uh, the added momentum of having done this for three months. So the effect would take longer to dwindle. Or he may have continued after those, he may have continued sitting many hours a day. We don't know. When he was 21, he made up his mind to go far away to do secluded meditation and was looking for a suitable companion. One day, he said he saw a traveling monk named Miao Feng, who seemed to be an unusual and genuine person. Unusual and genuine person. We're left to fill in what that meant. Probably a, a monk of great integrity, devotion, someone who anyone would recognize as uh, pure in his ethical conduct, determined. But a few days later, he left the monastery without telling me. Presumably, he feared that a too close association with me might hinder his freedom. You know, in, uh, in the time of the Buddha, monks, Buddhist monks were uh, told that they couldn't sleep in any one location more than, they couldn't sleep in any one location two, two nights in a row. They had to keep moving in order not to become, form an attachment to the place or to the people Awfully, awfully strict. That's, that 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 old tradition has come to mind now. This summer, clearing out our house, selling our house, and uh, uh, moving to Florida for the winter. 
that's a lot of letting go that we've had to do this this summer and I've always I've been, been uh, just reminding myself that this is this can only be good you know if you're not abandoning any responsibilities this can only be um, conducive to spiritual freedom is this letting go letting go all in really in in it's all preparation. It can be seen as preparation for dying. It's the ultimate teaching of Zen practice. It's learning to let go. We learn to let go by learning to let go of what's most difficult of all, which is our thoughts. That's what we're stuck to more than anything. If we can let go of our thoughts, if we can learn over time, is a sort of continuous practice to let go of our thoughts, then other letting go gets easier. Even, it would seem, it would seem letting go of life, dying. You could say that Zen practice, it's all practice in dying, which means practice in living. This is the secret, the secret of life, is learning to let go moment by moment. It starts with thoughts. That's why meditation is the basis of, of all freedom, learning to let go of our thoughts so that we can be fully here, fully, vividly here and not lost in our thoughts. Our time is up now. We'll stop and recite the four vows.